This is Martin Weinstein from Washington, and welcome to the Wilkie Compliance Concourse podcast series. This morning, we have with us a very experienced practitioner from Italy, Bruno Cova, a partner in the Wilkie Milan office. Bruno, welcome to the Wilkie Compliance Concourse podcast series. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Bruno, let me start by saying you've had a really fascinating career. You started out as a private practitioner. You then became general counsel at a major oil company, ENI, then chief compliance officer at the European Development Bank, and group general counsel of one of my favorite car companies, Fiat. Immediately prior to returning to private practice, you were then appointed by the Italian government to investigate the Parmalat financial fraud, which was really one of the largest in the history of Europe. And I guess what I want to start off by knowing is you've had all these different roles, Bruno. Can you tell us a little bit about them and the skills that are needed for each one? Thank you. Thank you, Martin. Uh, I have been uh, very lucky to have experienced so many ways to be a lawyer. Being a lawyer is per se something that requires different skills, but being a lawyer in situations that are quite different one from the other is uh, certainly a fascinating uh, challenge. I would say that the common features to be able to deal with these diverse situations are an ability to listen, an ability to adapt a pre-existing set of skills to different circumstances, a willingness to work as part of a multidisciplinary and multinational team, and the need to be creative to identify solutions that are always different depending on the circumstances. Well, Bruno, thanks for those pointers. I think for many of our listeners, that's very valuable information because I think so many times we're giving advice. And I think particularly the listening aspect of things is uh, one sometimes that uh, many of us I know, including myself, we're not quite as good at. But those are all very good tips because you've had such a varied series of experiences. I want to ask you about a very recent case that involves the oil company Shell. Now, I know much of what you've done in this case is confidential, but can you tell us about it and maybe some of the other interesting related matters and lessons you've learned from those matters? But this Shell case just recently decided is really a very interesting case. Can you give us some background on that? Yes. In fact, uh, while, of course, I'm subject to my confidentiality obligations, but because the case was in uh, a criminal tribunal in Italy, the proceedings were public, so a lot of what went on in that case is available to the public. As a matter of fact, all the hearings were broadcast on uh, a national radio station in Italy, and uh, therefore uh, the public knows a lot. As you said, it is a very interesting case where I think the most fascinating features, which Martin, you have seen in a number of other cases, are the multi-jurisdictional nature of this case with the uh, various countries involved, either as investigators or because involved in a cooperation across borders with Rogator International. The strategic element, given the reputational impact on uh, the company, but also on another oil and gas major, ENI, that was also involved in the case. And it was, um, in many ways, an absolute pleasure to work on this case, not only because of its high profile, but because of uh, the opportunity to work very seamlessly with Shell's legal department and lawyers in a number of other jurisdictions. 
It sounds like a tremendous experience. And of course, that's not the only one you've had. You were appointed by the Italian government, which is a, a significant event, to investigate Europe's largest financial fraud at the time, Parmalat. Now, was this one of your career highlights? And were there others? Can you tell us a little bit about Parmalat and maybe some other highlights that you've experienced in your career? With pleasure. Parmalat was certainly one of the highlights. It was a, a very complex situation. The company had to restructure 21.2 billion euros of debt, and the financial fraud was at the end found to be of 15.3 billion euros. I think it is still the largest financial fraud ever in Europe. To give you an idea of the complexities, there were 33 jurisdictions involved, and we had 97 law firms working on the case with a regulatory or criminal investigation in 11 countries. I'm certainly proud and pleased of the work done with Parmalat, which allowed the company to be restructured, to become owned by its creditors, to avoid significant fines. For instance, we were able to settle with the Security Exchange Commission a civil case that the SEC had brought against Parmalat for $1 billion and that was settled without any payment of money and uh, with the corporate governance uh, undertakings. I have uh, had the pleasure of working on uh, other significant uh, cases, some are of course confidential, you mentioned Shell. I will say uh, only two additional things. One is that one of the things I go hardest off is uh, the fact that the members of the board of the companies that have been able to represent uh, have never faced uh, criminal investigations or regulatory in investigations. The other thing I'd like to say is that I hope that my most exciting case is still uh, to come. The best is yet to come. Well, Bruno, you know, when talking about Parmalat, you led me into really what's my next topic, because you talked about all the different international organizations and different governments involved, and much has been written particularly over the last few years, about the close collaboration between regulators in the U.S. and the U.K., particularly after the passage of the U.K. Anti-Bribery Act. But now we're seeing increased cooperation among various European enforcement agencies. For example, I think Airbus is the most recent example of this. You've talked about Parmalat. We've seen Airbus. Is this a trend that you think is going to continue? And do you have a sense as to why this trend has become present? Yeah, I do think this is a trend that will continue and will grow. And it will continue and it will grow because it must. Uh, economic activity is uh, largely a cross-border activity. We, we know that globalization appears to be in retreat at the moment, uh, but certainly a, a very significant proportion of economic activity goes on across borders. And many of uh, the violations that uh, can potentially impact corporations are violations that happen in more than one country. Bribery is a typical example, but other violations like money laundering or market abuse or tax violations can often take a cross-border form. So cooperation is something that I think we will continue to see. And uh, as far as my own country, Italy is concerned, cooperation across jurisdictions has been a feature of criminal investigation for many, many years, starting with organized crime, one of the 
Italian investigators investigating the mafia was actually uh, killed by the mafia in New York uh, before the Second World War. So the cooperation goes back many, many years and uh, certainly continues, particularly between uh, the prosecutor's office of Milan, the SEC and the Department of Justice. Bruno, you've raised uh, some issues involving trends we just talked about in terms of enforcement. And one of those trends that we've seen is the introduction of some new concepts in the overall compliance investigations and enforcement landscape. Perhaps the most significant topic that has emerged is ESG, environmental social governance, as a new compliance topic. How do you see that fitting into the overall compliance landscape? I think this is really, at the same time, an old a new frontier for compliance. It's old because some elements have always been present. So, for instance, the reputational element uh, is something that people like you and me have always had to face when representing clients. It is also new because it has become uh, more well-defined because markets have these expectations and also there is regulation, particularly in Europe, that is addressed to the financial community, but has repercussions on all uh, listed uh, companies. So we will continue to see this as we will, I think, see an intersection with uh, the, the sanctions regime, uh, given uh, the reaction that people have to situations like the one uh, between Russia and Ukraine and uh, the four companies we need uh, to be prepared uh, to factor ESG issues in their compliance programs. Bruno, many of our listeners are practitioners that either are in-house compliance officers or are private practitioners that may be taking an in-house compliance role. What would be your tip for somebody who's moving from a firm into a compliance role or somebody who's in a compliance role within an organization, because you are one of the few private practitioners who's actually seen both sides. What tips could you give for some of our listeners who are in that position? Well, before giving them tips, I would uh, give them congratulations. I think the job of a general counsel or a chief compliance officer or a company secretary is a fascinating, very interesting job, uh, which allows the person to really make a difference and to participate in defining and uh, implementing the strategy of uh, a company. My tip are really uh, two suggestions. One is keep reading the newspapers because the next problem for the company is going to come from outside. And so understanding what is going on in the world, what people think, regulators, consumers, investors is important. And the second tip is stay employable. These jobs, by their very nature, are jobs that uh, uh, can be dangerous in the sense that there may be changes at the top, uh, which require uh, the person to identify another job opportunity, and therefore always on top of things and uh, preserving certain skills is important to be able to secure the next job if things don't go well in that one. Bruno, one of the things that we've discussed is this unmistakable trend of cross-border investigations. Certainly a trend that we've seen likely to increase. Can you share with us where Italy falls within that level of activity? 
Italy has been uh, one uh, of the most busy countries in terms of enforcement. If you look uh, at the rankings, uh, there have been years in which it was second only to the US in terms uh, of uh, anti-bribery enforcement, uh, but we have seen uh, France and Germany and the UK being strong enforcers. So all the main economies of Europe are now very much paying attention to anti-bribery enforcement. There are historical reasons why Italy has been uh, one of the key players in this area. One uh, is that in regions of Italy, organized crime is strong, which means that uh, laws tend to be draconian and prosecutors tend to be quite aggressive. Another reason is that Italy has often been a bridge for international corporations, including US corporations, in terms of doing business in countries in the Middle East or Africa or the former Soviet Union. So countries where the rule of law is not always applied as one would want to see it. Bruno, that's a that's a really fascinating assessment. Uh, you've had so many great insights and, uh, and it's really uh, been a pleasure to have you as a guest. I want to thank you because you're certainly somebody who's had a variety of experiences that most practitioners never get to have. And I want to tell you how much we appreciate your taking time to do this podcast and sharing your insights with us. You're very welcome. It's been a great pleasure. This is Martin Weinstein from Washington on behalf of the Wilkie Compliance Concourse podcast series. Thank you for listening, and we'll be speaking to you soon. 